So, we have been talking about uh, why this path, and uh, talking about the benefits of meditation and practicing the Dharma, and uh, we've had excellent discussions led by Jordan and Autumn and uh, Dhammadipa, uh, talking about the kind of those benefits, giving you an opportunity to start to realize some of the, some of the things that some of the fruits that you are enjoying of your practice and share that with each other. So what we're going to start talking about now, you know, if our format was good in the beginning, good in the middle, and good in the end, we're going to be talking about the good in the end part. If you pursue this path uh, to its end, it, its end is this particular uh, wonderful phenomenon it goes by a variety of names, liberation, awakening, enlightenment, self-realization, so on and so forth. And so that's what we're going to be talking about. Um, in the time that we have this evening, I'd just like to speak a little bit in general about what that is and give you an opportunity to ask questions so that we get, uh, we get a pretty good idea of what this is all about. I know terms like enlightenment and awakening and everything sounds very, very mystical and somewhat mysterious. And uh, you'll have heard a lot of different things. And some of those things might be a little bit difficult to reconcile with uh, your own experience of the world and life. So... If we, if we can sort of get a clear perspective on where we're going, we'll continue this uh, next week and, uh, and, and for at least a few, a few weeks subsequently, going more deeply into it. We'll eventually uh, talk about, well, we might get, that to this, get to that this evening, talking about the characteristics of someone who's actually achieved this goal. Uh, we'll talk about uh, the processes by which it is uh, achieved, and we'll also uh, we'll talk about the fact that it's not an all-or-none sort of thing. It's actually, there are stages of awakening. It is uh, a gradual process. So those are all the different kinds of things that we're going to talk about. But let's just begin with, okay, so what what is this enlightenment stuff anyway, and why would I want And we're, we're, we're speaking of this from a Buddhist perspective, but what I would point out to you is that every one of the world's major religions, uh, and some of the not-so-major ones, are, they're all, they all have uh, at least a branch of those religions that uh, the purpose of the practice is to achieve this liberation come awakening, come enlightenment. So it really is, it's not something that's exclusive to Buddhism by any means. It is a part of all the major religious traditions. I think where Buddhism stands out is that 
whereas it has kind of become something on the sidelines for only a very special few and is largely unknown in most of the other <coughs> uh, spiritual traditions of the world. In Buddhism, it has always maintained a good, solid place, center stage in what it was about. Now, Buddhist, Buddhist religions, it, once again, they also tend to put it off to the side of something that only the rare few individuals are able to pursue or attain. But that I think that's the nature of religions. Religions serve a function in, in society. They meet a kind of need of large numbers of people. And, and so there's that tendency. But in Buddhism, there's more of a focus on it. And the other thing that I feel is that Buddhism takes a far more systematic approach to achieving this than any other spiritual tradition does, which is one of its great virtues. Uh, it's a Jim. it's a very well well described well marked path that uh, is available to anyone and so we'll just where the Buddha started person the person that we refer to as Buddha and his name means one who is awake that's what Buddha means one who's awake so when you follow this path, you're trying to become a Buddha. You're trying to become one who is awake, completely awake, fully awake. Where he started was he was raised as a prince uh, at a time when there were many small kingdoms in, uh, in India. And as a prince, he enjoyed a lot of privilege. But where he was heading, which was to take over his father's position, also was a huge responsibility. Uh, he was responsible for the well-being of all the people that lived in his domain. And uh, he seemed to be the kind of person who took that very seriously. He, his personal spiritual pursuit began when he realized just how much suffering there was in the world and just how inescapable it was. As a prince, of course, he was subject to far less suffering than most of the, uh, most of the people that he would eventually be responsible for. And he had lived kind of a sheltered existence. But as he became aware of just how prevalent suffering is in the world and as a part of life, and that even in his very sheltered position and protected position, that he was still vulnerable to it, he made the decision to set out to find some answer, some resolution some solution to this. So, one of the terms that we use for what he discovered and what he achieved is liberation. And that's because one of the things that is, is a liberation from suffering. It's a complete liberation from suffering. 
something that's almost unthinkable um, and often difficult to understand. So what you will encounter when you read and study about this phenomenon and the Buddha's teaching and other spiritual paths leading to it is, are some very naive interpretations that somehow that this process is going to invoke some magical property of the universe which will shield you even more effectively from the, the pain that uh, is responsible for all of our suffering even more so than being a prince or a king, which is kind of a naive idea. But it, what it really reflects is how, for the average person, when presented for the, with the idea that you can do something as a result of which you will completely and totally overcome suffering, you know, it's like, what does that mean? How can that happen? You know, and yeah, so naturally... Uh, naturally, there's some sort of uh, magical and mystical interpretations. Mystical is a funny word. I, I really like mystical and mysticism, but at the same time, there's an element of uh, it, it goes from the, the mysterious to the magical to the just plain ridiculous. <laughs> so we have to be careful about it. But, yeah. It, 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 and maybe say instead of mystical, mystifiable or something. <laughs> anyway. So that is one characteristic of this end goal of the Dharma practice and meditation practice is that it will free you from suffering. And as I said, this liberation it goes by stages. And so you will have your suffering greatly attenuated and then even more attenuated and then all but uh, all the certain kinds of suffering will be completely gone and then you'll finally become totally free. The way it comes about, it is not by means of tapping into some magical super force behind that runs things in the universe and somehow being the the beneficiary of some incredible power that's going to protect you from everything. It comes about through overcoming delusions that are actually at the root of your suffering. And as you overcome the delusions, you acquire wisdom. So the overcoming of delusion is very much like you've been having a really bad dream, a nightmare, and you wake up from it and you realize, ah, it was just a dream. Ah, it was just a nightmare. And so another term, and this is the one I favor most, maybe because it's just, it's more directly descriptive and uh, doesn't carry quite as much baggage. Uh, awakening. So what we're talking about is an awakening. An awakening from a delusion that really is at the root of our suffering. 
And of course, as as ignorance and delusion fall away, it's replaced by wisdom. It's replaced by a very profound understanding. And so that's why another term that's applied to this is enlightenment, because of the connotation of boom, the light comes on. Oh, now I understand what's really going on. And another way of describing it is to have a realization of the true nature of reality, a direct experience of the true nature of reality. And so that's another way that is described. But freedom from suffering comes from wisdom. So you, you get two for the price of one. You start off on the journey, you want to get over some of some of the suffering you experience in life. But as part of it, you can't get the one without the other. You get wisdom, which is wonderful. Although I know there's some people in this room who didn't start on this path because they were trying to overcome this suffering. Some people start on this path because they want the wisdom. Suffering, smuffering, who cares? I want the wisdom. <laughs> and that's fine, too. You want wisdom, you'll get it. And at the same time, as a bonus prize, <laughs> it's also called self-realization because it involves a realization of the true nature of yourself, of who you are, and that's part of the wisdom, and that's part of the overcoming of delusion. Um, it that term self-realization also comes from a very long history of people seeking this goal and having seen that some people attain it but not quite understanding the nature of the wisdom and the nature of the delusion that's overcome and so they have thought of it in terms of the, the solution to the problem is finding my true self, who I really am, and what I really am is something that's really wonderful and wise and doesn't suffer. And if I could just discover that, that that's, how, that's how the goal is achieved. And that's not quite right. You do discover who you really are, but it's not that you discover you you are something something different than you thought you were. Like uh, you know, like it's not quite like uh, I I can't remember the fairy tale, but you, you thought you were a pauper, but then you discover that you're really you know you're really a prince. I thought you were a suffering human being and you discover you're really a god who just was confused for a while. <laughs> so. But self-realization remains a very, very useful description of it because so much of the process of awakening is discovering the truth about yourself, realizing the truth about yourself. So it's a, it's a good descriptive term as well. But we're all talk but it's all talking about one phenomenon that is accessible, that has been accessed many times, in many places, by many people. And it it's not as though Siddhartha Gautama 
who became the Buddha, was the first one that ever did this, first one that ever figured this out and attained this liberation, awakening, enlightenment, as he himself acknowledged that there were many that had come before him. And his purpose, there would be many who followed, but his purpose was to make sure that there were a lot more than there otherwise would be. Uh, and, and as I say, it is, uh, it is in, as a part of all the major religious traditions of the world. I think one thing that is not clear in any other spiritual tradition that I know of is that there are stages or degrees of awakening. And when we look very closely at some of those traditions and the writings in some of these other traditions, there has been a tendency to mistake the very first stage, the first level of awakening, for the end of the process. Um, I'll speak in terms of the Christian tradition because I'm more familiar with that and probably most of you are. And there is a mystical branch to the Christian tradition. And some of you may be familiar with Teresa of Avila and uh, John of the Cross and particularly the, the writings of these two and the descriptions of their descriptions of the spiritual progress. And they are excellent descriptions of, uh, you know, from a different tradition, of the movements that a person makes psychologically and spiritually to achieve the first stage of enlightenment. But, and in the Christian tradition, as in most of the major world traditions, the literature on these mystical attainments is fairly limited. And in the, in the case of the Christians, it pretty much ends there, although some of Meister Eckhart and some of these others have some things that say some things that suggest that there's more to it than this. One very interesting modern case is of uh, a Catholic nun who achieved through her spiritual practice within the Catholic Church. Uh, she achieved the first stage of enlightenment. I can't remember her name. Can you? Bernadette Roberts. Bernadette Roberts. Bernadette Roberts, yes. Wonderful. And, and she wrote about this, and then she wrote about what came after. And what's very, very interesting is that her understanding, on the basis of everything she studied in the Christian mystical literature, is that this is it. And for various reasons, she chose to uh, to return to lay life. She got married. She had children. But she continued to, with her spiritual practice, and what she discovered relatively soon is, oh, this isn't the end. It keeps on going. And she writes about this in her books, uh, The Path to No Self, An Experience of No Self, and uh, these, these are wonderful sources for seeing uh, somebody with, with a completely different background describing exactly the same thing that is described in the Buddhist tradition, along with a lot of detailed steps for moving through that. But one of the, the reasons I mention it is just to point out to you 
that one of the things that is unique in the Buddhist spiritual tradition is that it acknowledges that it's not an all or none thing. None thing. That one day you're not enlightened, and the next day you are. Well, you are enlightened the next day, but you're not nearly as enlightened as you're going to be if you keep on going. So, now, and, and, and the other thing that I want to say, too, is that um, although as Buddhism took the form of various religions, uh, the people involved in those religions did what people always do, and they said, well, this is the only way. Okay? But it's not true. As the example of Bernadette Roberts and John of the Cross and Teresa of Avila and Meister Eckhart and thousands of others that we don't know of and many, many Sufis and many, many uh, uh, Hasidic Jews. I believe it's a, yeah, that's the branch that takes the mysticism very... It's happening all over the place. It's happened all over the place. It's not the only path, but it is the most clearly marked path. And it's the one that describes in the greatest detail what the end goal is all about. And it describes it. What's very interesting is it describes it, um, well, at least the Buddha described it, in, wouldn't, I suppose you could say secular terms. Certainly in his day, the terms he described it in were pretty secular compared to the religious terms that were prevalent otherwise. And what's interesting about that is nowadays, that secular description translates amazingly well to modern physics and uh, cognitive science and psychology and everything else, and modern philosophy too. So it's all, you know, all of what we're discovering today is converging on the same truth that has been described by all kinds of religious traditions, but it's most easily to see, it's, mo it's easiest to see the convergence in the Buddhist tradition because of the kind of language and the conceptual structure that is provided. So that's, that's what we're going to be talking about. what it is, stages of enlightenment, and how you get there. Um, so what's it like to be enlightened? Well, to be fully enlightened means that, that, yes, you have absolutely no suffering in your life. And as you will come to understand, as you pursue this process, which is an incredibly powerful process of psychological exploration and discovery, you will find that suffering and bliss are not different categories. They are on a continuum. And complete freedom to su from suffering equates with perfect bliss. For this reason, you know, uh, from suffering to bliss is just a progression of decreasing suffering. From bliss to the worst suffering you can imagine is just a progression of increasing suffering. So it's a single, it's a single dimension. So that means that an enlightened being has no suffering and has perfect bliss. 
it also means that on the stages of enlightenment before you have maxed out, so to speak, you have you may still have a little bit of suffering of various forms. But in terms of this, where everybody else is living way down here, you're living way up there and you're moving towards that. So that's one of the characteristics is complete freedom from suffering and total bliss. And this freedom from suffering and this total bliss is completely independent of what happens to you. No, you don't become enter into some sort of new state of being where nothing bad ever happens to you anymore. Bad things can still happen, but they will have absolutely no effect on you in terms of creating suffering or diminishing the happiness that you experience. So that's a characteristic of enlightenment. As I said before, you don't get that without wisdom. So it's wisdom, a profound understanding of the, uh, of the world, of yourself, of everything and everyone in it. Um, and likewise, that's also on a, on a dimension that goes from total delusion and ignorance to complete perfect wisdom and understanding. And so, yeah, where most people live down in this end, you're going to live up at this end and you're going to move towards perfect wisdom. That's, that's the second main characteristic that you could, that, that you can use to, to describe and think about this. And the next one is as a result of that wisdom, that wisdom is what eliminates your suffering. But a part of that wisdom is understanding some really fundamental truths, which put to you this way, that absolutely everything is interconnected. And in a way that you cannot conceive of until you start getting a little bit closer to that end of the wisdom scale, we are all one. Everything is one. And this, you know, you've lived your life thinking you were a prisoner locked up in this little bony bowl here. (laughs) And except for yelling for help here and hearing other people do the same, you've been confined in that prison. And what you're going to discover is that that's not true. It's just a prison of your mind's own making, and it's totally an illusion. We are all one. We are all totally connected. So this is the third quality of an awakened being, is total, perfect compassion. The same kind of compassion that your right hand has for your left hand. Or the you of tonight has for the you of tomorrow morning. And that extends to everything and to everyone. So, you have a being free from suffering, living in bliss, with perfect wisdom, and perfect total compassion. Yes? You mentioned the continuum is from wisdom to delusion. Mm-hmm. What's the other side of compassion? Well, the other side of compassion, that that's really kind of, it's a, a parallel dimension to the the wisdom and ignorance. So the less compassion you have, the more prone you are to uh, 
well, the delusion makes you feel separate from others, and the separation makes you feel in competition with others. As, as it gets worse, the competition turns into anger, aversion, hatred, and doing and saying all the things that hurt others. So willfully, willfully causing harm to others because you see them as separate from yourself. Mm-hmm. So if you have perfect compassion at this end, I suppose at the other end you'd have perfect total hatred <laughs> for all the other beings and, and be willing to cause them infinite suffering if it were going to benefit you at all. Sound familiar? <laughs> so that's a, a, a perfectly awakened being and from the stage called stream entry when you first undergo a, a remarkable change from there to perfect awakening you're, you're operating on the far end of these scales and you're, you're moving towards that so that's that's what that's what awakening is about and so a person who is awakened to any degree has some degree of all three of these characteristics Somebody who has genuinely achieved stream entry, the first stage of awakening, is spared to a large degree, not entirely, but to a large degree, most of the suffering, the worst kind of suffering, that afflicts most of us. Afflicts, no, not most, afflicts the rest of us. Okay? Another characteristic that it is that person has considerably less ignorance and more wisdom and understanding. Now, we, we're going to get into this more deeply. What precisely is this ignorance? What is this delusion that we're suffering? And what is the wisdom that replaces it? And once we've discussed that and studied it, then you can come back to this description and say, okay, how would, I, how would I recognize somebody manifesting the characteristics of awakening, awakened being? And you'll see that they have much less of that particular kind of delusion. You'll see it will not be operating in, a, in them in quite the same way that it is in everyone else. And they're going to have far more of the kind of wisdom that we're going to talk about and describe. And then the third thing is you're going to find more compassion, more genuine love and caring for other people and less selfish selfishness that uh, leads to willfully doing harm for one's own benefit. So these are the characteristics that you will see in increasing proportions from the time a person reaches stream entry or the first stage until they achieve a full total culmination at the end. And it's time for me to let you start asking some questions. Hopefully I've stirred you up and got some good questions. So let's have at it. Yes? Something about your language suggested that there is some special type of suffering to which the ignorant are prone, that the enters of the stream 
no longer experience that it's 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 bounded and definable and it's it's that you know definitely pink there's yeah. there's something about it you know? absolutely you're you're right on it definitely is uh, now I I just qualify or, or correct slightly your description enters of the stream are still subject to it but not to the same degree right okay but it is that suffering is the suffering that is generated by your mind in response to the unpleasant circumstances that might befall you in your in the course of your life and the buddha described that uh, in, in one of his sutras, uh, he used the term worldling to describe everyone who's not yet achieved stream entry. And everyone who has is an Aryan. And he said, when a worldling suffers a pain, injury, loss, something like that, that's like being shot with an arrow. And immediately afterwards, they, if they experience the mental suffering they experience this, the, the grief, the sense of loss, or the suffering that we experience when we have an injury and pain and so forth. So, worldling is shot by two arrows. He said an Aryan is shot only by one arrow. Now, of course, we'd have to modify this and say stream enters and once returner sometimes get shot a little bit by smaller arrows. arrows. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> but, but yes, as your, their particular kind of suffering is the suffering that's generated by the mind. The first noble truth is, and we'll talk about this in more detail, but pain is inevitable, suffering is totally optional. And by this we're defining pain as unpleasant physical experiences. Yeah, you got one there. You can hold it up sharp, right? <laughs> <laughs> Suffering is all the misery that you experience in response to that. And that's all comes up here. And this was what made Buddha's discovery so powerful and, and so new, is to realize that when something happens to our body, it just produces an unpleasant feeling. It's what our mind makes of it that's responsible for all of our suffering. And from there, from that seed, he developed an understanding that leads to being, that, an understanding that is communicable, uh, and uh, what it leads to is to be completely free of suffering, so that you have nothing else except unpleasant physical sensations that don't bother you that much. That's a good question. Thank you. Yes. A common, at least in, in, in my observation, a common characteristic of compassion mm -hmm. is that it's is that it's somehow connected to suffering. That a person who is compassionate suffers when uh -huh. others suffer. Well, there now what we need to do, we need to refine our terminology here a little bit. One way it has been done is to make a distinction between sympathy and compassion. Um, and so sympathy means that you're having or sharing the same pathos that somebody else does. Mm -hmm. 
whereas compassion means with, uh, with a very powerful feeling, a loving feeling, a caring feeling. I don't know how well that works. It's almost like, better yet, we need to invent a whole new set of words. But that's awkward, too, because then every time somebody new comes in the room, they don't know what they <laughs> But compassion... What we lose are the urges of desire and aversion. And what replaces them is another kind of urge. And that's what compassion is. Compassion is the urge that makes you want to do anything that you can to help someone else and to relieve their suffering or diminish their suffering. But it's not a blind urge, and it's an urge that uh, to fulfill it, you you bring wisdom to bear at the same time. You know, because as we know, just doing what is going to make somebody feel better is not always a favor. It's not always the best thing to do. So it's very important that when we think of wisdom or when we think of compassion, we're talking about somebody who also possesses a degree of wisdom, and so therefore will apply compassion more skillfully. But the compassion, the person who's feeling compassion doesn't have to suffer themselves. They only have to feel feel this very strong urge, this wish to help in whatever way they can. And because of their wisdom, to the degree that they recognize there's nothing that they can do or that there's not as much as they might have hoped. They totally accept that. They don't suffer because they can't do more. They don't suffer. I don't suffer because you're suffering. And once I've done what I can do, everything that I can think of and, and have in my power to do, I'm not going to suffer because I couldn't do more. It, but that's compassion. I've done much more than probably someone else who suffers for you and reacts emotionally and gets mad at the system for not taking better care of you or whoever it was that hurt you or, you know, I'll let all those emotions come up and they'll get in my way and I won't be very effective in helping you, even though I want to. And that's the difference. The reason... Two, the part of the wisdom that's very important in this is uh, that you don't suffer because you know and understand how things really are. And when you see somebody else suffering, you know and understand how things really are. And one of the effects of that understanding is that you realize that the suffering that that person is experiencing, while it may be the totality of their reality in the moment, ultimately it is not what it appears to be. And it's that understanding that makes you immune to suffering when somebody else suffers. Okay. <laughs> so suffering is not what it appears to be? No, suffering is not what it appears to be. Suffering is something that 
It's something that the mind does to itself, and it actually is an illusion. But to the mind that's doing itself, it's the total reality. But it's understanding the bigger, the bigger picture, the larger truth, that that gives a different perspective. Um, I, an example that sometimes is helpful, but you know, it's, it, all these things are just metaphors that try to help, is the child that's crying because they're scared and and the loving parent knows that there's no danger, you know, and has every wish to comfort the child, but, you know, they feel very differently than if the child had a broken arm or was bleeding or something like that, right? They know that it's all in the child's mind, and they know that the solution is to help comfort the child and help the child to get over it. Does that help to yeah. clarify? It's okay. Um, you talked about a continuum um, from stream entry on up to and I'm wondering how that, if that continuum exists and how it works up to stream entry. And because I, it almost sounds like stream entry is this wall, and we're, we're building like a little sand pile to try to get over it, but that sand pile can always just erode and fall away. Mm-hmm. Once we make the wall, we're on a much firmer ground. And I'm wondering if that's true. Or that, that's a, yeah, I never heard it described that way, but that's a pretty darn good uh, <laughs> analogy. Yeah. And, until you make it over the wall, the sand can always wash away or blow away. Yeah. And that's, there's, that's there's true. There's still a continuum of less suffering as you're... I mean, that's what I'm unsure about, because... You know, in, in my experience, at least, there'll be moments where things are clear and it's less suffering, and that goes away and come, you know, comes and goes. But I don't know if there's, you know, any yeah. meaningful progression before yeah. you get there. Or... Well, you know, if we look at a typical person, they'll have periods in their life where pretty serious, deep, abject suffering, and they'll have they'll have times where they're innate wisdom comes through enough that they're actually there just just on this side of the wall. And we live our lives going back and forth through these. And probably, I, I would be surprised if there's any, anyone in the room who can't relate to that. There have been times when you've been in the depths of misery and pain and suffering. And there's been other times when, uh, not just because things were going well, things may have been going well and may have still been going pretty lousy, but something inside of you sparked a certain wisdom and understanding that allowed you to be more or less free of, of that. For some of you, it may have been a peak experience that you had that it's like, oh my gosh, you know, I just realized how I've been doing this to myself. I'm, I don't have to do it to myself anymore. But the problem is, it's like, the sand washes away. You get up to that point, but you slip back down again. You'll you'll find yourself in misery again, or uh, someday. So it it is that stream entry is what's significant about it. Is it marks a point that you will not fall back from. Now between stream entry and the next stage, it's the same thing. You can go back and forth like this forever, but then you'll get past that hurdle. 
and then you'll be moving back and forth again. But good analogy. Yeah. Yes. Is the Dalai Lama on his way to be enlightened? For sure. <laughs> so are you all but with in the, in the case of the Dalai Lama I'd say he's, he's someone that we can use as a really wonderful uh, role model you know for what we can do as well yeah. I wonder if you could comment on the difference between tolerance and compassion because I have some um some notion about how to be tolerant. Mm-hmm. I'm not always so sure about being compassionate. Well, compassion, compassion is the wish to do anything that you are able to do to help someone else in their suffering. I'm not sure what tolerance means to you. But how would it relate to that definition of compassion? Well, tolerance to me would be acceptance of what is without feeling a need to make a change in it, allowing the other person to be who or what they are mm-hmm. um, without uh, having the, the need to do anything about it. Well, okay, so. I can see that what the way you describe tolerance, it could be either an, a, an awakened thing or a very unawakened thing. We all tolerate a lot of poverty, a lot of different kinds of suffering in the world around us, in society. Uh, one of the big political battles in this country is is between tolerating uh, large segments of society continuing to suffer and uh, doing something about it at some cost to ourselves. And to allow somebody to suffer when you could do something about it is there's absolutely no compassion in that. But when you have done all that you can and you recognize, or at least genuinely believe, to the very deepest part of your being, every cell in your body is in consensus, says, okay, we've done everything we can, and we can't, to accept the suffering that you can't do anything about. That is, that is the wisdom that tempers your compassion. So that's the difference. If it's possible to do something, and you know it's possible, and you tolerate someone else's suffering in spite of that, then you don't yet have true compassion. And unfortunately, what many people do is they'll provide a certain degree of help for those who suffer, just so that they are able to tolerate all this other suffering going on without doing anything about it. 